The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Slight reading change, Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault just between the two of you alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two along with you that every testimony can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If he will not listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he even refuses to listen to the church, treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. Whatever you bind on earth, I tell you, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, my Father will grant it to you. For where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record these words. We believe these words not only had power in the day that Matthew wrote them, but that these words have power this day because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus. For the sake of the world, and in his name we pray, amen. I invite you to be seated. The church where I met Jesus 24 years ago stands nearly empty today. The church where I met Jesus as a new convert, 27 years of age, 27, 17 years of age, I just aged myself a decade. You're all doing the math. That's about how old I look. But no, 24 years ago, 17, you do the math. That church stands nearly empty today. This summer when we were back on Vancouver Island on vacation, I had an opportunity just for a few minutes by myself to go over to the location. And I was aware of how much decline had happened, but I started sneaking around the property. It was like a weekday afternoon, nothing was going on, and I found myself peering in windows and the rest, and, and I could have easily got arrested, especially since I live in the U.S. now. But <laughs> at the end of the day, this church that was, at the time that I was converted, you know, 500 or more on a Sunday, had a huge outreach program to children. We had over 1,000 children go through a VBS program in our summer school every year. Vibrant, growing and here we are, 24 years later, and it's got about 13 people going to it. It's because that church, not long after I left that church to go to college, that church, like so many other churches and so many other Christians, ignored Jesus' clear teaching on dealing with sin and conflict in their community. Instead, conflict and sin rose, 
It festered. It turned to gossip. It turned to factions. And it destroyed that church and the people in it. Jesus gives us Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. If you're there with me, if not, turn with me to Matthew 18. This, these, these few verses here are a gift from Jesus to the church about how to deal with conflict resolution the Jesus way, the Christian way. What I love about Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, is this passage is absolutely straightforward, clear, it's incredibly practical. There's steps Jesus gives us. It's commanded, just to be clear. It's not a suggestion. But it's ignored, it seems, more than almost any other teaching of Jesus. See, it seems that when we come to times of conflicts, that we choose to go other directions. We choose instead to become gossipy, to become vengeful, to become passive-aggressive, to become avoidant, to become just like the rest of the world. That there becomes no differentiation between the way conflict and sin is dealt with in the church and how it's dealt with in the world. In a world which is so full of conflict and waiting for a church that would rise up and show it how there could be a new way, that world continues to live in conflict. Veterans, as we celebrate veterans today, Veterans know better than anyone on earth the full horror and effects of unresolved conflict. As General Douglas MacArthur once wrote, the soldier above all others prays for peace, for it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of conflict. A world full of conflict is desperate to see the church respond to conflict like Jesus. And it's hard. It's hard to respond to conflict the way Jesus teaches us, but it's the best way. As Bishop Tom Wright says of this passage, he says, many Christians have taken the paper over the cracks option, believing that this is what forgiveness and reconciliation means, pretending that everything's all right, that the other person hasn't really done anything wrong. That simply won't do. If someone else Another Christian in particular has been offensive, aggressive, bullying, dishonest, or immoral. Nothing whatsoever is gained by trying to create reconciliation without confronting the real evil that's been done. Forgiveness does not mean saying it didn't really happen or it didn't really matter. Forgiveness is when it did matter and it did happen and you're going to deal with it and end up loving and accepting one another through it. What Jesus tells his disciples about conflict resolution is really three things here. First, he tells us that conflict resolution, the Jesus way, is about mission. First and foremost is about mission. That you cannot put this in a second tier category. This is at the very heart and centrality of what it means to be the church because the mission is at stake. But not only is conflict resolution about mission, conflict resolution, the Jesus way, is a particular method. He's not going to leave it up to us in the heat of the moment to kind of make it up as we go along. He says, let me be very clear with the steps. There's a method here. But not only is this 
conflict resolution the Jesus way, all about mission and about method, but ultimately it's about, at its very core, mending. It's about healing. It's about restoring. It's about saving. It's about rescuing, mending. It's the whole heart of the gospel. See, first, we see with conflict resolution here in Matthew 18 that Jesus is saying this is about mission. What is at stake with conflict within the church is the mission itself. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this binding and loosing passage has created not any small amount of consternation and debate within the life of the church over 2,000 years, right? What is Jesus meaning when he says to the church, you have the ability to bind things on earth that would therefore be bound in heaven and loose things on earth that will be loosed in heaven? It's referred to as the office of the keys sometimes. And at the heart of what Jesus is saying here, if you can hear it, is that Jesus is giving to his disciples, he's giving to his church the message of reconciliation for the whole world. What he's giving to the church is the message of forgiveness of sins found alone in Jesus Christ. And as the world hears this message of the gospel proclaimed, as they hear you and me taking the message of Jesus out in the world, it will be by the nature of the hearing and receiving of that message that either they are loosed from their sins and forgiven, or that if they reject our message, they will remain bound. And what happens in this gospel proclamation not only happens here, but will last unto eternity. What Jesus is telling us is those words of the evening of the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, when he kind of gives an account of everything that the Old Testament, everything the Hebrew Bible was pointing to, He says in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. This message of reconciliation, this message has been given to us and there is no plan B. We are the ones, his church, broken, imperfect as we are, we are the ones filled with the Holy Spirit, given this message, sent out into the world. And by the nature of how we live and proclaim this message, the world will get bound, remain bound, or the world will be loosed for heaven. Which is why verse 19 is so important. Verse 18, wow, that's enormous. Enormous responsibility. Thank God for verse 19. He says, and I tell you that whenever two or more of you on earth agree about anything you ask, my Father will grant it. There's some mysterious gift that God has given to us through Jesus that as his church agrees with each other, as we together are in agreement, that that message will be successful. That as we agree with one another in the gospel, as we stand in agreement with one another, Jesus says there is a mystical, supernatural power that God has given to his church. This impossible mission, so it seems, actually takes place because brothers and sisters stand in agreement. That word agreement 
It's a great word in Greek because the, the Greek actually declares even more of what it means. The Greek word for agree is symphoneo, symphony, right? Agreement is about not homogeny, but unique, different voices and giftings and persons who are in harmony. We don't go to the symphony to hear one line of a melody. We go to the symphony to hear all the instruments together playing in agreement. And this is what Jesus is promising, that the church is to stand in symphony together, in agreement together. And as we do that, broken, incomplete, limited as we are, the gospel message does its work. We all agree what it sounds like when we hear discord, though, don't we? It's a horrible thing to listen to discord as opposed to harmony and symphony. When I was 11 years old, I had a great humbling moment, one of many to follow. I was 11 years old. I was aspiring as a young performer, and I got convinced as I was going to a recital, I had this duet I was singing, I was convinced that I, 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 I got it. I got it. My mother would sort of, you know, bother me through the week. Are you son, do you don't think you should run your portion again? No, no, mom, I got it. We're in the car driving there, son, really? This is a particularly difficult piece of music. Are you sure you, I got it. I got it, mom, I got, I got it. I got it. Performance started. I didn't have it. It was awful. And it was long. And every, it was just terrible. It was just so bad. It wasn't even anywhere near close. And the difficulty was that this got captured in a photograph because there I am singing with Marin Curry Roberts standing next to me. And as I start squawking in notes that no human being should listen to, um, I did what seemed appropriate. I stared ahead and pretended there was nothing wrong. Very serious, just kept singing. Marin, on the other hand, who was singing beautifully, turns to look at me through the entire duet with a look of absolute horror on her face, and it got captured in a photograph. And every time we have a family gathering, my mother brings out the photograph. <laughs> Discord. It's awful. And yet this is exactly what it is like for the world to look in on the church and see us not in agreement, to see us not in symphony, to see sin and conflict brewing among us and dividing and fracturing us. But see, not only does Jesus say that the conflict resolution that he commands us to is about mission, the whole mission is at stake. Jesus says the conflict resolution, the Jesus way, is a method. It's a particular method. There's steps here. First, he tells us in verse 15, let's just be clear, if your brother sins against you, brother or sister, sins. See, it's important that we recognize here, first of all, that Jesus is talking about sin among brothers and sisters, sin in the community. This is not just about what bothers you about someone else or annoys you. This isn't what bugs you the idiosyncrasies of a person, or someone has a differing opinion, right? You can't apply Matthew 18 to differing opinions or things that bug you. This is about sin. And it's not ever going to be right for a Christian brother or sister to turn a blind eye to another's sin. 
because it rots within the community and it will rot in the heart of that brother or sister. As uncomfortable as those sin and vice lists are in the New Testament, we need to regularly be reminded that there is such a thing called sin in this world. And it is at the door of each of our hearts. Paul says in Galatians 5, 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is never enough to simply say, well, it's, it's just their business, not mine. A brother and sister in grievous sin and grievous error creating grievous conflict in this church is never a minor matter for them or for the church. And so Jesus gives us these steps. Step one, verse 15 goes on to say, tell him his fault just between you and him alone. The first step of this method of Jesus is to protect the privacy, to not create a shame moment, not to sort of gather all your buddies and share the story with 25 people and let the mob take over, which we do because it makes us feel secure. It's much harder doing this to actually confront one-on-one this person who has sinned against you. And let me just put a quick caveat in there, as I always do, speaking about reconciliation and forgiveness. That these words of Jesus apply to every and all situations, every and all situation. But I would say this, that if you are in a conflict of relationship that falls under the categories of the four A's, adultery, addiction, abuse, or abandonment, these words still apply. But you will need the help of the church to walk with you through this. You will need church clergy or counselors or others to walk with you. You hear me? But this applies to us. So the first step is one-on-one going. And it's, it's, it's the spirit of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, which says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See how the first step is meant to be a gentle approach? But then the second step, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Now, we're told that this is based on the Hebrew law code, that no testimony can be given without two or three witnesses. And the whole basis of the Hebrew law code in Deuteronomy chapter 19 is this understanding that we who make accusations against one another, we ourselves are broken sinners and we are prone to error, to misjudgments, right? To be hiding our own sins. Our motives can be suspect. And so we need more than one person to walk through this in the second stage. I like how Bishop Tom Wright says, you should choose people to come with you who are prepared to tell you some uncomfortable truths if that's what's needed. Isn't it true that you've been in those situations where you've come to someone to confront them about a conflict 
And then, you know, as the data is unveiled, as the story unfolds, then you realize, in fact, that you completely misread motive, misread the situation. What you thought was this horrible, grievous sin towards you, in fact, was nothing at all. Or, even worse, you realize as the facts are uncovered that I'm actually the offender. I've caused the problem. See, Jesus' slow method here, step one, step two, is about giving the chance for the Holy Spirit to convict our own hearts. Step three, verse 17, if he refuses, tell it to the church, which doesn't mean drag them down here on Sunday morning in front of all of you. It means submit them to the church leadership. So we have clergy and we have bishops and others who can stand as a kind of counsel of leadership in those hard moments. But if they do not listen even to the church, verse 17 goes on to say, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. It's, it's hard to hear this final step because it sounds like such rejection. And yet even in this final step, this is ultimately about rescuing a person from grievous error. I like how 1 Timothy chapter 1 says in verse 10, 1 Timothy 1.20, that rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And then Paul says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may learn to not blaspheme. It's harsh, but it's about ultimately learning. It's about the restoration of this person. It's recognizing that sin is real and sin is hard and can't be ignored. They're being treated as they're acting. They're acting like a non-believer, and so we approach them in that vein. We say, we don't know if you're actually a non-believer, but you're sure acting like a non-believer, so we'll treat you like a non-believer. More on this in just a moment. I've told my Matthew 18 story just a few weeks, weekends ago up here. My story in brief where I was working at the church when I was entering college and I um, just before even going to seminary, just 18, and I got in a major conflict with the rector's wife, never a wise thing to do. Um, and I was awful. I was spiteful. I was bitter, I was slanderous, I said terrible things. I was working to create this whole little group of dissent. And graciously, she came to me one-on-one. -on -one, and I totally rejected her. And then a little while later, she came back with another. Same story, I totally rejected. Eventually, two wardens walked into my office and sat down with me. And as they began to tell me the same charge of accusation, it dawned on me. I'm like, this is Matthew 18. And I'm already at the third step. <laughs> but even then, they were gracious that as I did acknowledge my sin and I did repent and I did seek restitution and put back together that relationship, it was received graciously. But I'll tell you today, I am convinced to the core of my being that I would not be in the church anymore 
if those men and that woman had not come to me with Matthew 18, this method of Jesus, I'd be long gone from the church by now. See, this conflict resolution approach, according to Jesus, is about mission. It's so central, very central. Everything's on the line. But it's also a clear method. And Jesus is giving us a method based on being the smartest human being who's ever walked the earth. He knows that this works. So often we get in our own situation, we say, no, Jesus, you know, you don't understand the complexity of this conflict. Really, Jesus doesn't understand the complexity of the conflict. This works every time, but we need to submit ourselves to the method of Jesus. But finally, Jesus' conflict resolution approach is about mending, and this is at the very heart of the gospel. I love how in verse 15, it says that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Gained your brother. It's the word kerdos in Greek. It means to win. You've won your brother. The prize that you've grabbed at the end of the finish line is, I won my brother. The whole exercise has been for the purpose not of self-aggrandizing, not seeking vengeance, not making myself feel better, not going through some sort of narcissistic, cathartic experience of just telling you what you've done to me, but instead actually through the whole line of this process of conflict resolution has had the singular goal of winning my brother, winning my sister back. That's the prize. The fact that brother bookends verse 15 makes this clear. If your brother sins against you, you've won your brother back. It's mending a family. It's bringing a family back together. I remember driving in a funeral procession uh, in the funeral coach a number of years ago when I was in Ottawa, and it was just me and the funeral director in the lead car, and the family were in cars behind us. And it was a long trip, and so I, I ended up taking a phone call from a parishioner and we're talking and I guess through the phone call as the funeral director's listening in several times I'd said you know well thank you brother yeah I'll pray for your brother and you know bless you brother you know brother came in there a few times and I hung up the phone the funeral director said so was that your brother and I said yeah 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 uh, yeah and he said like older younger I said well I said not my biological brother this was a parishioner of mine and and the funeral director was this really like aggressive atheist. He and I loved having conversations on the way to the cemetery. Um, and, he, and he was like, oh, you're one of those churches. You're one of those brother, brother, brother churches. <laughs> and I said, yeah, we are, because that's what every church is supposed to be. We are a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, who've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, made into a family, And the whole core of Jesus' call for conflict resolution, for sin and conflict in the church, is that we would mend the family. That we'd mend those relationships. And even that final worst step is even about mending. You know, the final step that even if they don't listen to the church, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, there's mending even in this. Because here the gospel How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? 
He rejected them, right? He kicked dust in their face. He spat at them. No, he invited them into fellowship with himself. He invited the pagans and the tax collectors and the sinners again and again to him. The greatest charge against Jesus was the fact that he welcomed pagans and tax collectors and sinners into his presence. And therefore, even if we get to that stage with a brother or sister, they've rejected even the church. It doesn't mean we're rejecting them outright. It means that we're recognizing they're not functioning like a Christian. Therefore, we won't assume to treat them as a Christian. Instead, we'll treat them as an object for God's mercy and salvation. As Eugene Peterson says in the message when he translates this verse, he says, if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start all over again from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Mending. In a world full of conflict, the world is looking for a church that would resolve sin and conflict the way Jesus has taught us to resolve sin and conflict, that has mending at the very core of it. Mark my words, mark Jesus' words. This is about mission. Whatever conflict you or I may have exhibited or be sort of around the edges or very much at the center of our current life right now, whatever is there, know this, it's not a minor issue. Those conflicts will ultimately get in the way of the mission of the church. But also know that whatever conflict you may have, whatever sin may be growing between brothers and sisters, That there is one method that Jesus calls us to. Do not be so arrogant as to believe that your situation is so special that Jesus' method doesn't work. He's the smartest man who ever lived. But only is the mission at stake. Not only is this method the only appropriate gospel method, but mending must be at the core. As you approach this conflict, as you approach that sin that is dividing you or a brother or a sister, do you approach it? Will I approach it with the full goal to win them as my brother, as my sister again? Of course, this is the very heart of the gospel. It's not like Jesus is calling us to do something that we've not experienced ourselves. This is exactly what God has done with us. We were in conflict with God. We were enemies of God. We were in rebellion. Sin stood between us and God. And what did Jesus do? He came among us to win us. And it cost him everything. God was in Christ making peace between God and man. By grace we have been saved. I like how they Next passage, the next story Jesus goes on to tell about the the unmerciful, wicked servant. You know, the man who's forgiven like $20 billion in contemporary currency, and he finds a brother that owes him a few thousand, and he's choking, you've got to give me that money. And what does Jesus say just after this passage on reconciliation? What does he say? You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not 
of have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. The church where I met Jesus stands nearly empty today. Let us heed the words and the promises of Jesus. This is how the world gets changed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.